Welcome to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. And as a warning, this podcast deals with topics that some might find triggering. So we do encourage you to hit pause, walk away for a while, or do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself while listening. I'm Nikki from House of Faith and Freedom, and you can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm here today with House of Faith and Freedom's founder and my co-host, Hannah Fordyce. Thanks, Nikki. I'm Hannah, and today we have the opportunity to speak with Chris Maloney, a retired Army captain and police officer and the founder of Sheepdog Church Security. I actually got to know Chris through my husband, Paul, originally because they worked for law enforcement departments whose areas of service overlapped. And it has been um, an incredible pleasure for me to um, work with Chris, both professionally in some capacity, as well as getting to know him as a person and as a Christian. Um, Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I can't wait. Yeah, so before we get too far into our conversation on um, church security and creating safe churches, could you tell us a little bit more about your background in the military and law enforcement and what eventually led you into the idea of starting Sheepdog? Yeah, so I, um, I joined the Army right out of high school and uh, went in to be a military policeman because, quite frankly, from a very young age, I was drawn to law enforcement. And um, as my mother would say, I had a very soft heart towards those that were suffering. And so I went into the army to be military police, basically because they're the only ones that would trust an 18 year old with a gun and, a, and an MP bizarre and squad car to patrol around. And so I joined the military, spent several years as an MP, uh, served in Desert Storm. Um, my career continued on. I made E6 staff sergeant for you, uh, those of you in the army and understand the rank structure, but E6 for the rest of you. Um, and then at that time, I also was transitioning. So I left active duty. I was in the re uh, reserves. I also became a police officer. And so kind of those kind of run parallel for a little while. So I spent 21 years in the military. At some point, I did change to the dark side and took my commission, uh, left enlisted, became a lieutenant, and then later uh, ended up as a captain of a logistics uh, company and retired. I'm 100% disabled, uh, spent 18 years in law enforcement, like I said, kind of corresponding with each other, and I actually finished my time in law enforcement as a crime prevention officer. Um, basically at that point, I was starting to recognize it's not necessarily about catching the bad guys, but rather it was about preventing as much as we can, the mitigating those risks as much as possible. Um, the whole church security thing started in about 2009 when um, basically I, I'm a slow learner, but I was approached by the leadership of my church that said that there was likely money being stolen from the church from the safe. And so they asked me to, you know, get a new safe, develop a new procedure, that kind of stuff. And I did that. And they're like, this is great. This is awesome. In fact, um, the compliment was so good that the auditor, the annual auditor said, can we take your policy and share this to other churches? 
And I was like, okay, cool. No problem. Rock on. And then I ignored it because I'm dumb. And then, and then later uh, they came back to me and basically said, hey, our insurance company is requiring training for children protection, right? Because obviously all the things going on in the world was getting out of hand. Now insurance companies were realizing this was a big expensive thing and they wanted to have training. So I put all that together. This is and did all that. It was great. Awesome. They said, good job. And I went on with my life. <laughs> so finally, they came back and said, hey, we need to have some sort of safety ministry where we're looking at everything that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And we're making sure that we're being proactive in reducing risk. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I put together my first team. And the first thing that I realized is that the common person doesn't have an understanding. And I know we're going to get into a lot of this today. They just don't understand. If you're not in this realm, if you're not a victim, you're just, you know, I don't want to say clueless, but you're unaware of what's going on. And it's only through awareness and training that we can start having a positive effect on the culture of the church and uh, for victims and people that are suffering. And so um, I put training together and my basic strategy, my philosophy was this, is if I teach a group of people today how to recognize victims or how to respond to emergency circumstances, then next Sunday, they're ready. Hmm. And that was the whole point. Hmm. And so there's a lot of other things we have to think about when safety ministries, we got policies, legal concerns, structure of the, of the ministry, all that kind of stuff. But for me, it's been I can train you something today and tomorrow you'll be ready. And so that's what Sheepdog Church Security Academy is all about. Training people, giving them a base knowledge. Absolutely. I love that. One of the things that we talk a lot about, um, Nikki and I do, around domestic violence training in the church is be proactive, not reactive. Because when something's happening, when that person is in your office right then, or when a situation is going down that's dangerous or risky, you don't want to be Googling the answer right then. You know, your, your chance of error is so much higher if you just haven't done that front end work, because you don't know how to respond. You're trying to figure it out in the moment when something is already stressful and it's already moving at a really quick pace. Um, so I resonate highly with that. Um, what is the vision and mission? I mean, you alluded to, we've talked about it being sheepdog, church security. It's obviously church security and training up security teams to some level of base knowledge. What's, what is the, the vision and mission of sheepdog? Yeah, I mean, if I could wave a magic wand and have everything I want, I mean, it would be about churches and other houses of worship having some sort of um, mechanism in place to deal with the challenges, the risks and threats that they face. You know, so for one thing, it's simply this. Crimes of all sorts have always occurred to and at churches. They've always been there. I mean, recently I did a deep dive into um, the FBI stats, and we both know the FBI stats are not great, but at least they give us some indication of what's going on. And you see this baseline reality 
that's always existed. It's never, I mean, it's never changed. Now, some things we're seeing increasing, vandalism, arson, that kind of stuff. But for the most part, they've always been there. But for some reason, and I, and I don't know why, and if I knew why, I'd probably have a million dollar book, but we've become very complacent in how we view what's happening at the churches. Either we're ignoring it, it's kind of a denial, like, oh, this is just a one-off. And so we'll deal with this, stumble through it, and we'll be okay. But these things have always been going on. And so it's about re-creating awareness again and realize that these things have been going on and are going on across the country. And we all need to kind of wake up out of our slumber. The other thing is, is violence in church. It's climbing it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And to give you an idea, and I wish I had the stats in front of me, so I'm going to have to base this off of my memory. From 1999 to about 2008, the amount of um, deadly force incidents, now we're not talking about people actually being killed. We're just talking about people being presented with, with violence in the church was something like, um, it was something like uh, 20 incidents per year with about 18 people being presented with deadly force violence. Okay. So 20 incidents, 18 people in the following 10 years for 2008 to current, it climbs to 70 incidents per year with, um, with something like 60 or 50 people getting killed. So what we see is just, I mean, if you look at the graph, it's kind of like, and then all of a sudden, whoop, It just flies up. Something Mm -hmm. is happening in our society, which is becoming far more violent, or at least in our houses of worship, in our churches, it's becoming way more violent. Mm -hmm. And to speak to what we're going to be speaking about today, a big portion of that, you know, anywhere from 25% to 35% is domestic violence spillover. And so we... Playtime is over. I mean, to be blunt, playtime is over. We need to take a real action in order to safeguard our churches, not only for the stuff that's always been going on, but this new increase, radical increase in the violence. We have, we have to do something. There's no avoiding this. We have to address it. Right. And I think we tiptoe around it as churches, as Christians. And I'm sure there's like you said, a ton of reasons why we maybe do that. Some of it is just we we perhaps don't want to face the reality that that's something that could happen in our houses of worship or that someone who, you know, is attending our church or is a member of the church could have the ability or capacity to become violent, to become dangerous. But also, I mean, as Christians, we recognize sin is a part of life. It's a it's a part of the broken world that we live in. And so when we really, truly believe that, when we really recognize it, and then I think if you work, you know, in law enforcement or in advocacy for any length of time, you really lose that sense of invincibility of like, this would never happen to me, or this kind of stuff doesn't really happen here. It's something that's on the news or far away. Like, we're sitting ducks if we're not prepared Right, right. That's not a reason to be afraid of everything. But the reality is that violence does happen. Active shooter situations do happen increasingly. 
you know, violence spill over into the church, domestic violence in the home. These things aren't relegated only to, you know, the outside community. There are things that still happen inside of the church. How do you train churches to be more cognizant of that while also not falling into sort of this like um, fear tactics of being like, you need to be afraid of everybody all the time because they might be violent or you need to constantly like suspect everyone. Yeah. So there's the conversation I have with a pastor or ministry leader is different than I have a conversation with a fellow sheepdog, a guardian of the congregation. The conversation I have with pastors is this, is that you need to be open to the idea, re-accepting the idea that these things are going on. You know, at least entertain the idea that you, you need to be more aware. And then you should also have some sort of training or preparation done in anticipation of facing this. You know, you talked about it. When you have the victim sitting on the other side of your desk, this is not the time to Google a response. You have to know beforehand. Um, so a statistic, and I, this is not domestic violence, but they talked about uh, a survey they did where they did interviewed um, pastors and they said, how important is it for you to be aware and alert to the probability of children being victims of abuse in your church? And it was like 80%. Yep, we absolutely have to be aware. We definitely have to take care of this stuff like this. Then they asked them, do you have a plan? And it was below 20%, right? So their heart is great, right? We definitely want to be there for victims. We want to be that, that church that creates that sanctuary, that help for them. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, they don't have anything. Then my conversation with sheepdogs, people that are wired to be protectors, people that are looking for training to be protectors, is I say, you know, this is not about fear, but this is about trust versus ver and verifying. It's okay to love people, welcome them, you know, make them feel like they're a part of the church. But we do not, sheepdogs do not trust blindly. We have to have an eye of scrutiny. We have to look closely. And it's not because everyone could be a bad guy. It's because a lot of them could be victims. And they're, they're needing, desperately needing an advocate. And so if they're trained to look for victims, you know, what are the signs and symptoms? You know, what, what are they going through? What might they say? How might they behave? What, you know, those kind of things. Then what we can do is we could say, okay, I suspect this person is a victim or could be a victim. You know, we have the initial signs and symptoms. For me, I can say, I'm not the best person to be their advocate because of the way I'm wired. However, I can go over to, you know, the women's ministry leader or someone I know there and I can go, you know, hey, I'm really concerned about you know, Miss Smith, I'm really concerned about April. Um, something ain't right there. And um, I'm not the guy to approach her and talk to her, but I know you probably are. Will, will you investigate this, this suspicion that I have? And we do the same thing for adults as we do for children. I mean, it's basically 
we have to have a critical eye, a trained eye, a practiced eye. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we, unfortunately, it's not fear mongering. It's just mm -hmm. trust, but verify mm -hmm. that we have to have. Yeah, I appreciate that, that level of passion for victims within the church. And if you don't mind diving just a little bit deeper on what are some of those signs and symptoms, Chris, that you have been alerted to before, maybe could you share a couple of examples? And granted, I know in the body of Christ, we all have different gifts. And especially when you're talking about discernment, is this something that's reserved for those with discernment or... Is this, I mean, could you just speak to the depth of, of yeah. seeing those signs and symptoms? Yeah. So the thing is this, is it's not a special gift. You can be trained to have a discerning eye. And, and it's not as complex as here's your list of 20 things that could, mm -hmm. you know, could indicate that this is going on. Um, it's about knowing human nature. You know, so when I talk to my teams and I'm talking to other people that are going to be training, um, you know, going through our training, it's like part of your job in your patrol, you know, before, during and after services is to watch people. You really need to watch people and you get a very good sense very quickly of how 90 percent of the population behaves in the public space. Right how they look, how, you know, we're looking at facial expressions, we're looking at body language, we're looking at how they dress and how they interact with other people. And if you observe people, you get a sense for the normal. And when things are outside the normal, then it requires a closer look. In the case of a potential victim, um, you know, you'll see things like you know, without even seeing bruises and the obvious signs of, um, you know, of domestic abuse or physical abuse, you're going to see a downcast face. You're going to see somebody who's avoiding contact with other people. You're going to see somebody in emotional turmoil. You're going to see somebody that reacts differently when they're presented with their spouse or other people in authority. You're going to see that withdrawal. And so if you're watching a person behaving normal and then all of a sudden the husband walks up and all of a sudden their whole character and demeanor changes, that tells you, hmm, something ain't right here. You know, maybe they're arguing over who takes out the trash. We don't know. But if, if, we, see this, if we see this behavior repeatingly, then it's kind of like, okay, Maybe there's something more here. You know, same thing applies to children. You know, if every time the pastor comes around, the child withdraws and runs away, you know, this tells us something that something is not normal. It's not fitting in this. So really it's about, it's, it's measuring people's behavior against nor, um, traditional social norms. And, um, and then sharing those suspicions with people that are in the position to address it. Like I said, I, I probably uh, only under extreme circumstances would I approach a domestic, what I thought to be a domestic violence victim. Um, 
in the lobby of the church. Unless the only time I would do that is if I was fairly convinced that the abuse could happen as soon as they leave. Mm-hmm. Then I would intervene because we have no time. Yeah. But if it's a sense that I'm getting over a period of time, I'm going to reach out to one of the more mature, smarter women in the w- women's ministry and say, you need to corner her <laughs> and talk to her. Now, as you well know, that even takes a certain amount of training for that person to do that and do that well. Mm-hmm. Yes. But even if they're not, right, they're just a mature, experienced, smart woman. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, it's better than nothing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to take those initial steps. I'm not going to say, oh, you know, uh, Miss Lori doesn't know how to deal with domestic violence victims or potential vac- domestic violence victims. I'm not going to let that hold me back from asking her, hey, you really should talk to this woman because I think something's going on and somebody has to do something mm-hmm. and hope for the best. <laughs> Which yeah. is not the right answer for this group. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? I do. I mean, all I'm really saying is this, is that we can only do the best with what we have when we have it. And for your ministry, that's to take it to the next level, right? It's a, it's about taking the, the women's ministry director, if you will, or even the men's ministry. I, I knew a friend, he was on my safety team. He was a victim of domestic violence for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ended up, he ended up leaving her. He got custody of the kids. It was a nightmare scenario. But I, I guess I'm just putting in the quotations that even though we talk in him and her, it could be, you know. Yeah, it could be flipped. And one of the things that uh, came to mind when you were talking was um, my husband, also in law enforcement, right, always talks about having your head on a swivel, right? Like he's just constantly at a high state of awareness. And when I think of that in the context of the church or a security team or even leadership in general, what kind of comes to my mind is, and, and if you literally listen to this podcast at all, you will have heard me talk about this story probably ad nauseum, but like the story of the Good Samaritan and the idea that a lot of times I think the church is the priest in that story. Well, we walk past the victim of violence on the road and we never turn our head to look, right? Like we expect that someone should have to cry out for help before we will pause and pay attention to it. And so we have to learn to use our necks and actually turn our head to pay attention and say, clearly that is not right or something is wrong or something is off and then do something about it. Pause. Even if you're just stopping to ask, even if you're just paying closer attention, like you said, taking that closer look to say, all right, something seems weird about this. That doesn't mean necessarily that it, you know, something is weird about it. Something seems weird about it. So then you take that closer inspection, you pay more attention, and then you ask. And it's always, like you said, better to do something than nothing, even if you feel underprepared. And I think in the world of, um, if we're talking victim versus offender, you know, to use those sort of terms, like with a victim, I would also say, like, go to someone who knows them, someone who they're going to trust, and just say, hey, can you just, you know, this? these are some of the things I'm seeing that are weird or that are off. Can you double check that they're okay. Can you ask about it? Can you open that door so that they start to feel like if there is something they need to talk about it, they're free to do so. 
that doesn't mean they necessarily will right now, but at least they know that they can talk to you. At least they know that someone is paying attention and cares enough to ask them about it. You know, and then of course we would encourage you to, you know, get some training on disclosures and understanding what some of those next steps to really create a holistic environment around a survivor or victim is. But yeah, ultimately just do the next thing. And another thing you brought up is the idea that you work together with other people. You don't need to be the end all be all knowledgeable everything in your church. You can be someone who's more of a sheepdog that deals more with security stuff. And if you notice someone, you know, something that's off, know the person who's going to be the best fit to pass that off to and trust that they're going to do their piece of it. You know, we function together as a body, as a, as a working conglomerate of different pieces. So know your strengths, know your giftings and like be willing to walk in that and do it as well as you can. And then trust other people to do the, the next part. Yeah, absolutely agree. I, I think about, um, you know, your husband and I work in an area with a battered woman shelter, mm -hmm. right? And so I would go on a domestic violence call. I would do the best I can with the tools and abilities that I have. And then I call the battered woman shelter and I say, we have a victim over here. You know, it's passing it off to somebody who can do something better. And that's one of the things I tell churches, too, is this, is the church, your church, your body is not responsible for all the ills in the world. You can't handle all of it. You know, I mean, you can't solve homelessness. You can't solve domestic violence. You can't do all these things. But what you should have is a Rolodex or a contact list filled with people that know what they're doing and say, hey, I'm sorry you're homeless. I'm sorry, you know, but the county does this and let's, you know, or whatever, mm -hmm. domestic violence, let's take you to the next person, child abuse. Let's, what's the next step? We don't have to have mm -hmm. all the answers and churches shouldn't try to be the answer to everything, but rather redirect them. 100%. Yes. We talk about that in the context of like, um, instead of a Rolodex. <laughs> from, okay, from I dated myself as a teeny bit there. But for my audience, that makes complete sense. <laughs> yeah, we talk about like the idea of it being that we're an emergency room, you have people coming in with all sorts of hurts and traumas. So you know, our, our group of listeners would be familiar with that idea of like, you may not be the specialist who deal is a cardiologist or who is a trauma surgeon or whatever, but you should know enough to stabilize that person and get them to where they need to be without causing more harm. And so a lot of it is like, what's that basic prep? We need to be the ER doctors that, that as the church, we just are because we have people coming in from all sorts of different sectors. So your best friend is your Rolodex. <laughs> your best friend is your connection to the community and the people who can, you know, provide the expertise that you maybe don't have. Part of our annual training that your husband and I have been through about a billion times <laughs> includes people coming in from different sectors and different mm -hmm. jobs, and they present what kind of services they provide. Mm -hmm. Everything from what, you know, what do you do with the runaway kid that runs away every single week? You know, all these different resources that are out there. And of course, then they hand out all their business cards and you leave these meetings with all these flyers and business cards because as a police officer, you don't have all the answers. You shouldn't know. all. You can't know all the answers. You just need to be able to be like, OK, what was that one again? Oh, yeah. OK, it's 
here's the one, here's the phone number, here's the next step for you. And uh, yeah, so and pastors need to be the same way. And quite frankly, in my humble opinion, safety team members need to be that way too. We need to have a list of contact information to call, you know, start with poison control, you know, <laughs> everything, just have it all in there and be yeah. ready for whatever you might face. And you want to talk about something that's a very low amount of investment, like time investment, effort investment, but really high reward. It's for sure referrals. Do you have a strong referral list? It shouldn't take you that much time to be familiar with the things that exist inside of your community or space. These expert numbers you can call these organizations that have a very similar mission to you in a lot of ways. They're on the same team with you. Like, once you have that list compiled, I mean, I'd encourage you to get to know those organizations better and build a relationship, but at least have the list compiled so that when that situation happens, like, you know where to, you know where to bring them. You're not, again, you're not Googling therapists or mental health professionals in the area. You already know which ones are good and you can just immediately send them there instead of being like, well, uh, you know, let me get on my laptop and sit there and go through Google pages for a while. And I'm not sure which ones are actually good and which ones aren't. You know, yeah. just, just be a little bit of proactive goes a really long way. And not to mention <clears throat> just connection with others. I mean, the church, when I think of the church, you know, why, why would we want to isolate ourselves? Why not um, know well the resources in our community? Because those resources are people and people with expertise and they're made in the image of God and crossing paths with them and building relationships with them is just a fantastic way of just loving others instead of, you know, an isolated church expecting ourselves to have all the answers and to do it all. And it's just not, I just don't believe that that's God's design and what a way to, to truly love, love other people on behalf of victims and survivors and abuse. And that's a very biblical view, right? I mean, the Bible talks about different parts of the body. And each part of the body has different roles and responsibilities. You know, the hand is not the foot and the ear is not the eye. And that is a very good biblical view of saying, hey, you don't have to be at all. If you're the eye or the mouth, pastor, you're the mouth. Awesome but know when to pass on the responsibilities to the eye, the ear, the hands, the feet. And also like that should be a relief, you know, it shouldn't feel like that is a bad thing. It should be so much pressure off your shoulders to recognize there are other people with other giftings and other expertise that can carry on in a situation where you may feel totally dumbfounded because it's just not your area of knowledge or experience. Um, speaking of these different areas, you know, we work a lot on the victim side of things and more in the realm of advocacy and long-term care that can dabble over into things like um, church policy on occasion or, um, you know, preventing child abuse or noticing some of those signs. But for the most part, House of Faith and Freedom deals more on the back end of things. And, I, you know, I know when to pass it off. We talk a lot about creating a safe church. It's why the book is, you know, my book is titled Ready Refuge. It's why we call this podcast Seeking Sanctuary. But 
in reality, my knowledge base is fairly limited around security teams and the actual physical security of your church. And that is something that you do every single day. So what are some of the areas that you see as being um, particularly vulnerable in the church and that like if a church is listening should be the number one things that they're thinking through when they're thinking about their church's security, the actual physical safety of the building and the people inside it. Yeah. So the, the primary thing is, you know, we've already talked about denial. Obviously that's the biggest hurdle, but once you get over that hurdle, what, what I often tell churches to do is this, the first thing they need to do is identify people in the church that have the heart of a sheepdog that are willing to patrol the grounds before, during, and after the services. And the whole idea here is, is quite, is very simple. Is their job is to do what we've talked about. They're watching people. They're paying attention to what's going on. And if they see something suspicious or there is an emergency, then their job is to call 911 if that needs to be the thing, or to provide some sort of intervention if they're trained to handle that type of situation, to intervene on behalf of potential victims. And if they do that, they immediately make their church a lot safer and kind of creating that sanctuary. So to give you a good example is we had a domestic violence scenario working out at a church. They were getting a divorce. He was being charged with uh, child molesting and violence against the kids and his wife. Um, and as we all know, as that kind of abusive relationship gets closer and closer to the end, the risk and the violence you know, skyrockets. It really increases. And so even though at that time my team was not as trained as I would like them to be, they were still out there. They were still aware of what's going on and how they could, if nothing else, 911, hey, he's here, you know, that kind of activity. So the biggest vulnerability, I would say for most churches, is just they're completely in what we call in the Cooper, uh, Cooper Codes of Awareness, they're in white status. They're like people sitting in their living room watching TV. They're not paying attention to anything. In a lot of churches, that's the biggest risk. We have to get past that where you at least have some eyes and ears paying attention. And just by that alone, you know, if he comes sliding up sideways in front of the church and jumps out of the truck, we got something going on, right? And those seconds, those moments of, of uh, something's coming, we need to respond. You know, that buys us time. Time is important, right? We can smuggle her off into an office, a classroom and hide her out. You know, we had we for her, we had a very aggressive plan for defending her. And it mostly had to do with removing her from um, his observation. Um, and so, I yeah. So getting back to the biggest risk of denial, number one is the problem. Then at least having an active team paying attention. And then the next thing is communication, especially with domestic violence. So as we all know, there's a pastor um, counselee protection, right? That a pastor is not supposed to, or unless a crime is about to be committed or is currently being committed, 
a pastor has no legal obligation to say that um, or tell anyone. Um, some pastors may take that too far. We certainly could discuss that. Um, but what I've learned is this, is they could at least tell you something is going on. There's a domestic, you know, violence situation that's ending in divorce. You need to be aware. I'm not going to tell you any names. I'm not going to tell you any people, but it's going on. I can do something with that as a safety team member, right? I can go to my team and say, hey, we have something going on at the church. Our alert level needs to increase. If you see anything suspicious, especially if it looks a little bit like domestic violence, then we need to be very quick to respond and or and or call police. And so it's denial. It's no eyes and ears. And it's a lack of communication between leadership and that safety team. And if we can get on top of that stuff, then we can create at least a safer environment. You know, we, the church cannot create a 100% safe environment for domestic violence victims. They can't. Um, but can we make it safer? Can we make it better? Can we add layers of security? Yes, we can. And so let's do that. And let's have real plans, especially if a woman, like in our case, she came up and said, this guy's... She was able, she got to that point, you know, we all know that does, that's kind of rare, but she got to that point where she could say, I'm afraid. I am very afraid of this guy and I'm a very afraid of what could happen to my children. And I can tell you, we locked down that children's ministry tighter mm -hmm. than a drum. Mm -hmm. And we had an, an exit plan for her mm -hmm. to keep her safe. And, um, we're, we're, some of our team members are trained and able to respond with greater levels of force if necessary. Wow. And I think of how one of the reasons that churches can end up being sort of a, a prime target for DV spillover is because they're a predictable place that someone goes, right? Like they, if they're there on Sunday mornings, they probably go to the same service time every week. Their kids go on Wednesday night for youth group. They're probably there every, you know, Wednesday night at the same time. So when you're dealing with a situation um, where it's an estranged spouse or a significant other, a lot of times they're already familiar with the pattern that they follow in their daily life. So stalking becomes a lot easier. And, um, you know, we, we talk about this in like safety planning and sort of the domestic violence world is like, you know, change the route that you go to the grocery store, go to a different grocery store, go to a different bank branch or do online banking, change your locks, change where you park, you know, like change every part of your pattern. If you've recently left that relationship so that you are not as at risk of running into that individual. But that's really challenging when you're dealing with the church because that's their established community. So the chances are pretty good they're going to continue to go there at the same time every week. Um, what are, uh, you know, maybe some ways that the church can be more proactive in 
keeping a, a a generally safe church space? Like what are some of the signs they could watch for that something may be going on in the domestic? Or what are some ways that they can sort of watch over the grounds to make sure that there isn't something suspicious happening either in some of the back rooms or in the parking lots or things like that? There's a case I'm thinking of specifically right now. Um, I can link it in the show notes, but it was a few years back, a, a woman had left a domestic situation, gone to church and was murdered in the parking lot because her abuser was waiting in the parking lot for her. Um, so some of, what are some of the ways that we can, we can just be more protective or more careful around those areas? Absolutely. So in the military, they had, um, it, this might be a holdover. This might be dating myself a little bit, but they would have stand two, which was basically in the early morning before the sun came up. We had to go out to our firing lines, our fighting positions, and be ready for the morning assault, because that's how war used to go, right? You're getting ready. So you're right in the sense that a church's services are a specific time and a certain place. The bad guy knows where that is, and so do we. So we know this. So our alertness is up. We're paying attention. We're ready for the assault. That's the whole point behind stand two. And the church can do the same thing. We have somebody at risk. We need to be in a ready state. We need to be ready for this. And we need to have a plan. In her case, we had somebody stationed near her just in case he got past us. Mm -hmm. Right? Somehow, some way. I don't know how he would, but let's say it happened. This person, the safety team member, was within five, 10 steps of her the whole time. And if he would have attacked at that point, she's to be shuffled off into an office where they'd be in lockdown and guarded by that person. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, the point is this, yes, the time and place is known for both of us. So we can prepare as a safety team. We can be ready for this and be alert. The other thing is this, patrolling, patrolling, patrolling. In the case of the woman getting killed out in the parking lot, you know, retro, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I get it. But the safety team, especially under those circumstances, really anytime, they need to be patrolling that parking lot. 75% of all um, active shooters in the church start outside in the parking lot. Hmm. So we have to be out there patrolling, looking for suspicious people sitting in their car, waiting for ambush, whatever it is going on. In fact, the podcast I recorded today and uploaded today is about suspicious vehicles. You may or may not heard of a a safety team member was recently killed because there was a suspicious vehicle in the parking lot. They took some photos. That's how the bad guy was caught. And then the bad guy ran him over, drug him into a ditch, threw his body in the ditch. Um, horrible situation, but the whole podcast is about how do we deal with that person sitting in the parking lot? Are they waiting for ambush? Like I said, 75%, all deadly force incidents start outside. So we need to be out there and paying attention. And in the case of the case that you're thinking about, maybe, you know, we don't know what would have actually occurred, but if a safety team member was patrolling out there and saw this guy sitting in his car, would have there been other indicators that he was up to no good? 
Hmm. You know, his facial expression, anger, hate, nervousness as he's shuffling around in his car. As we're doing an approach, a slow, deliberate approach, are we seeing other indicators that could be this is a bad situation where you fall back, you call police, let the police respond. So there's answers to a lot of this. And it's just a matter of, you know, it still comes up with those components. We got to get over denial. We actually have to have a safety team that's trained and acting deliberately. And then we have to have communication. So now let's imagine a different situation. If I know that a bad guy wants, you know, without even knowing names, there's a, you know, custody issue going on. The guy's violent. All right. I see somebody in the car with that in my head. That's different than somebody who's just borrowing our Wi-Fi or pulled over because they're not allowed to text and talk on the phone while they're driving. And now I'm, you see what I'm saying? Now my awareness level is different. And now I'm measuring his behavior. I'm observing what he's doing. And then if I get the little hair standing up on the back of my head without any way, real way of explaining why, I fall back. I call police. Let the police handle this guy. And if it turns out he just pulled over because he wants to eat his hamburger and fries in the quiet of the parking lot, awesome. Who cares? No harm, no foul. But if he's awaiting an ambush, mm-hmm. let the cop d- discover that, you know. <laughs> and, 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 sure. and this is a big part of it, too, is recognizing as the church, you know, even even as a, as a safety or security team, again, there's limitations on what you're able to do. You're not an investigator and you don't have to be. And my husband and I talk all the time. I can't even tell you how often we talk about this because I'm very guilty of it is like, I'll be like, should I have called 911 for this? <laughs> like Things where I was like, well, I don't want to bother them or I don't, you know, I don't know if it was actually big enough to have bothered calling the police. And my husband's always like, that is our job. Literally just call. Like we're not annoyed. If anything, we're probably sitting around waiting for a call. <laughs> like, you know, his, totally different, but like his grandmother had back when she was alive, had, had fallen in the restroom and spent seven hours on the floor. She had a phone. She just, just didn't want to call and inconvenience anyone. Like we have to get past that mentality too. And also just, you know, trust your gut a little bit more. If something's off, check into it or call 911 and have them check into it. Because if nothing's wrong, then their day will go on as normal. But if something is wrong, you could save a life by doing that. You know, it's, it could make an enormous impact. So at least just consider doing it. And I also love the idea of checking your parking lot because we often don't think of the property as a part of the church building. We just think of the walls. We don't actually think of the space around it. But like you said, it starts on the outside and that's where someone's going to pull up and usually where there'll be no resistance. And if they get going out there, they're already going to have the chaos and they're already going to have the upper hand when they're coming into the building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the impact of this is just not only incredible, but it is, um, wow, it is a relief. When I think of, and so many listeners out there now who have been, or who are survivors, so many won't set foot in a church um, certainly <clears throat> for maybe the way things have been handled in their past, um, um, for legitimate Chris, like you're, like you're covering 
legitimate safety harm issues and the safety of a, of a building space. Uh, it is a relief to hear this. I'm imagining survivors out there listening, being relieved, going, if I knew that the church I was attending or, or if I knew of a church that had these things in place and they, it would just be a relief to be able to be all the more encouraging to them to, to be there, to show up how many victims are not there. And for maybe good reason. And I love that you're a part of opening the doors wide of church for people to come and to come and be safe. My best advice for a victim, if I may be so bold, and they're wanting to return or visit a church, is I would say two things. If you're able, and I get not everyone's able, but if you're able... I would ask somebody if they have a safety ministry mm-hmm. and if they say, yes, we do. Then if you're able, have a conversation with the team leader or the safety director, let them know. And the reason I say that is it's a couple things. And I know that takes a lot of courage and I'm asking a lot from that. But the first question is simply a, a little peace of mind there that, hey, there are people that are paying attention and will respond if something bad happens, if my husband shows up. At least there's something there to, you know, to insulate you to some degree. But if you can actually have a conversation, like the example I gave, I mean, I was able to sit down with her. And and only as far as she was willing to discuss with me, she told me what was going on and what I needed to know as a safety team member. Then I could disperse that information with my team and we could have a really, we could have a real plan. Like I said, we locked down that child ministry. I mean, he would have needed a tank to break into that section. The kids were safe. There was nothing going to happen to those kids. And then for her in the sanctuary, a little less secure, right? But we provided her with her shadow. And then the rest of the team had a very real plan for, you know, so we knew what he looked like. <laughs> we knew what the, ve- he had two vehicles that were most likely, but we didn't get rid of the idea that he could borrow a vehicle, steal a vehicle, but we knew who he was. We had enough background to know that he was, I'm actually, I mean, he's in prison now, but I'm actually shocked he didn't get violent. Like, I I thought for sure we were going to have an active shooter situation. Um, But anyway, then we can do so much more. So for the victims, if you're able, ask if they have a safety ministry, that's basic. If they don't, you might want to shop around because that means they're just like what you would expect, a very Mm -hmm. dangerous place with nobody prepared to help you. Um, But find somebody with a safety ministry. And then, like I said, if you're able If you could have a conversation with me or whoever the boss is, I can do so much for you. A lot I can do for you. Like I said, her kids locked down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And And that was obviously her biggest concern. Right. And I love the idea when we're, when we're talking about this, um, 
as a safety ministry because it is a ministry. It's something that is really important. And when you're, I mean, when you're talking about someone who's been living at a certain level of um, anxiety or fear or a certain level of violence for a really long time in their home, like the one place you really shouldn't have to worry about violence, that takes this incredible toll on you in every sense of the word, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, to be able to come into your church and know at least to the best degree possible that you're going to be safe in that space and able to worship without being constantly afraid or that your kids are okay to go to children's ministry and you don't have to keep them with you in the sanctuary because it's going to be safe there for them because you know that you know your ex-spouse or whoever isn't going to be able to walk in and just pick your kids up and leave with them while you're in church. Like that lends an incredible gift to that individual that allows them to connect with God. And it's also a picture of God. And that was something I kind of wanted to lean into here at the end. I probably should ask this question at the beginning, but it's called sheepdog church security. Where do you get the term sheepdog? And what does it actually mean to be a sheepdog? Yeah, so the idea occurred to me when you simply use very old Christian language to talk about Jesus as the shepherd. Um, the, then, of course, the follow-on to that is also that pastors can be known as a shepherd. And then, of course, you have the flock, the sheep, you know, the congregation there. And the idea that the shepherd, Christ or the pastor, has a sheepdog. And the sheepdog's job is to defend the sheep against the wolf. That's what they're designed for. That's the way they're wired. You know, you're talked about having a safe sanctuary as being a gift to domestic violence um, victims. But you know what's a gift to the sheepdog? Giving them an opportunity to be a sheepdog. If you let the sheepdog know that, hey, it's not a bother it's not like calling 911 where we already talked like, I don't want to bother anyone. And meanwhile, your husband's going like, call, for goodness sake, that's all we're here for. That's the sheepdog's heart. Let us know. It's a gift. It was a gift to us. I mean, the, the, the number of volunteers that were coming in on every service increased. They were patrolling the parking lot. They were watching the doors. They were shadowing her. They were ensuring the children's ministry was locked down tighter than a drum. They, they were the happiest sheepdogs I ever saw in my life. So please, by all means, do we have a safety ministry? And let me talk to the sheepdogs because they're going to give me the gift of a safe sanctuary, and I'm going to give them a gift of actually serving in the way that they're wired to serve. And so anyway, I, now I just kind of ran all the way around. But the sheepdog is the protector of the flock and the aid to the shepherd. That's what it's all about. Wow. I'm moved to the point where, honestly, I'm not sure I have words for that. When I think of so many sheep that have been scattered in, um, in and through their experience with domestic abuse, and to hear you say these words is such um, uh, a voice of ushering these sheep back home. And I think of so many of them that are, they're not home. 
honestly, I cannot thank you enough for not only your heart for this and how God has fashioned your heart for this, but for so many people out there who have that sheepdog mentality who are sitting and probably who would be loved to be called to the table to be there and play their active role in the body of Christ as a sheepdog. What, what a remarkable place for them in the body. And I would be one of the first to want to thank them. <laughs> well, there's a lot of them out there. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm glad for ministries like yours too, because isn't it a, isn't it a match made in heaven? We have herding sheep out there that have been subjected to the wolf and with no protection, with no oversight, nothing. And there's, there's also probably just as many sheepdogs out there mm -hmm. that would love to protect them. They would love. And so it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> it really is. Chris. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, one of the things I, I kind of want to close with is um, we talk a lot about, I keep saying we talk a lot about, it's kind of funny. <laughs> Nikki and I, we're at House of Faith and Freedom, we talk a lot about um, the idea of, of love as described in 1 Corinthians 13, right? This sort of love chapter. And I think a, a piece of love, of God's love in that definition that we tend to forget or leave out quite frequently is love protects love always protects. And that's a reality. And it's one that we as the church really need to lean into and embrace. Because like you said, at the beginning of the podcast, Chris, the reality is we live in a fallen world. And, and just genuinely, statistically, violent incidences are going up. Like, it's stressful times, people are broken, culture is broken, we can't afford to be naive and think that wolves don't exist. We have to understand the reality that they do and that we're really easy pickings if we don't have sheepdogs, if we aren't prepared, if we aren't on that general level of awareness and alertness. Um, so thank you for the protection that you're um, training the church up in and for you know this whole great group of sheepdogs that you're bringing around. Um, I will link all of the information for sheepdog church security trainings um, as well in the show notes. There are a lot of really um, accessible avenues for you to get into some of those trainings, whether that's individually or as a team or in person. Um, do you have any, any last things that you'd like to comment on Chris? No, other than I want to post this video too. Um, just because you and I both know at the end of the day, there's still a lot of, um, there's not a lot of awareness about what you're doing and what's going on. And quite frankly, gosh, if we could just get one thing, right? If we could just get one person in every church across the nation to at least read your book and listen to this podcast, to increase that awareness and preparation for these type of scenarios. You know, there's a lot that cheap dogs can do to provide that moment, if you will, in time at the church, that sense of safety and security. But it is so much more than that, right? I mean, like you talked about, you're the, you're the post, you know, post incident help. And um, unfortunately, while it's good to have a phone number, 
it's even better to at least have a base knowledge, a base understanding of how to handle these situations, not just the security of them, but now making them whole or something close to whole. I mean, I don't know what your ultimate goal is, but, you know, somebody who's free from this, from that abuse, you know, and um, yeah, pastors, leaders, sheepdogs. Yeah. Need more. Do it. Do it holistically, right? You got to fight off the wolf, but then you've got to tend to the sheep afterwards. So absolutely, always that that full picture, and that's again, like you said, it's a match made in heaven. It's like, how do we really find like-minded, Christ-like organizations that can provide your church the training so that you you can have the base knowledge, you can, you know, not cause harm, you can stabilize in the meantime, and then you can figure out who you need to refer to in a really wise way for continued care, you know, beyond what your means may be. But it has been an incredible pleasure to chat with you today. It always is. Um, Again, I'll link all the information in the show notes below. And with that said, um, thank you for being with us, Chris. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Glad to be here. You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart. This podcast is a production of House of Faith and Freedom and 321 Media with your hosts, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, check out our website, houseoffaithandfreedom.org. This program is made for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice.